Chapter 21 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Davis. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 21, The Charleston Forts. Major Anderson reached Fort Moultrie and assumed command on the 21st of November, 1860. Having from his several interviews with the President, Secretary of War, and Lieutenant General Scott become fully impressed with the importance of his trust, he proceeded as a first duty to acquaint himself thoroughly with his situation and resources. The great Charleston secession celebration on the 17th had been held while he was on his way. The glare of its illumination was extinguished, the smoke of its bonfires had been dissipated by the fresh Atlantic breezes, and its holiday insurgents had returned to the humdrum of their routine employments. It was, therefore, in uninterrupted quiet that on the 23rd of November he in company with Captain Foster made a tour of inspection to the different forts, and on the same day rode out and transmitted to the War Department a somewhat detailed report of what he saw with eyes fresh to the scenes and surroundings, which, as he already felt, were to become the subjects of his most intense solicitude. On the main point, indeed, there was no room for doubt. Agreeing with General Scott, with Colonel Gardner, and with Major Porter, he gave the government its fourth warning that the harbor must be immediately and strongly reinforced. Quote, the garrison now in it, that is, Fort Moultrie, is so weak as to invite an attack, which is openly and publicly threatened. We are about sixty, and have a line of rampart of fifteen hundred feet in length to defend. If beleaguered, as every man of the command must be either engaged or held on the alert, they will be exhausted and worn down in a few days and nights of such service as they would then have to undergo. Unquote. Such, in brief, was the condition of the fort he had been sent to hold. Moultrie was clearly the weak point of the situation. Already informed, to some extent at least, by the superior military genius of General Scott in his recent interviews with that distinguished commander, Major Anderson, now more forcibly from personal inspection, comprehended its strong points. What was then perfectly obvious to the trained military insight of Scott and Anderson is now, in the light of historical events, quite as obvious to the civilian. Look at any good map of Charleston Harbor, and it will be seen that the city lies on the extreme point of a tongue of land between the Ashley and Cooper rivers, every part being within easy range under the guns of Castle Pinckney on a small island three-quarters of a mile distant. Four miles to seaward is the mouth of the harbor, and nearly midway therein stood the more extensive and imposing work of Fort Sumter, its guns not only sweeping all the approaches and ship channels, but the shores and islands on either hand. It needs but a glance at the map to see that with proper garrisons and armaments, Fort Sumter commanded the harbor, and Castle Pinckney commanded the city. If the government could hitherto plead ignorance of these advantages 
against the rising insurrection, that excuse was no longer left after the report of Major Anderson. In the same report, he calls attention to them in detail. Though not in a complete state of defense, he gives notice that Fort Sumter, quote, is now ready for the comfortable accommodation of one company, and indeed for the temporary reception of its proper garrison. Captain Foster states that the magazines, four, are done and in excellent condition, that they now contain 40,000 pounds of cannon powder and a full supply of ammunition for one tier of guns. This work, that is Fort Sumter, is the key to the entrance of this harbor. Its guns command this work, that is Moultrie, and could soon drive out its occupants. It should be garrisoned at once." Unquote. Still more strenuously does he insist upon the value of Castle Pinckney. Quote, Castle Pinckney, a small casemated work, perfectly commanding the city of Charleston, is in excellent condition with the exception of a few repairs, which will require the expenditure of about $500. It is, in my opinion, essentially important that this castle should be immediately occupied by a garrison, say of two officers and thirty men. The safety of our little garrison would be rendered more certain, and our fort would be more secure from an attack by such a holding of Castle Pinckney than it would be from quadrupling our force. The Charlestonians would not venture to attack this place, that is, Fort Moultrie, when they knew that their city was at the mercy of the commander of Castle Pinckney. If my force were not so very small, I would not hesitate to send a detachment at once to garrison that work." Unquote. So full of zeal was Major Anderson that the government should without delay augment its moral and material strength, that in default of soldiers he desired to improvise a garrison for it by sending there a detachment of thirty laborers in charge of an officer vainly hoping to supply them with arms and instruct them in drill and hold the work until reinforcements should come. Having in detail proposed protective measures, he again in the same letter forcibly presents the main question of the hour to the Secretary of War, whose weakness and treachery were as yet unsuspected. Quote, Fort Sumter and Castle Pinckney must be garrisoned immediately if the government determines to keep command of this harbor. I need not say how anxious I am, indeed determined, so far as honor will permit, to avoid collision with the citizens of South Carolina. Nothing, however, will be better calculated to prevent bloodshed than our being found in such an attitude that it would be madness and folly to attack us. The clouds are threatening, and the storm may break upon us at any moment. I do then most earnestly entreat that a reinforcement be immediately sent to this garrison, and that at least two companies be sent at the same time to Fort Sumter and Castle Pinckney, half a company under a judicious commandment sufficing, I think, for the latter work. With these three works garrisoned as requested, and with a supply of ordnance stores, for which I shall send requisitions in a few days, I shall feel that, by the blessing of God, there may be a hope that no blood will be shed, and that South Carolina will not attempt to take these forts by force but will resort to diplomacy to secure them. If we neglect, however, to strengthen ourselves, she will, unless these works are surrendered on their first demand, most assuredly immediately attack us." Unquote. 
If Major Anderson had added no further word to the clear and straightforward statement and recommendation thus far quoted, his professional judgment and manly sense of duty would stand honorably vindicated before posterity. But his language of loyalty, of wisdom, of humanity, a soldierly devotion, which ought to have elicited a reply as inspiring as a drum roll or a trumpet blast, brought him no kindred echo. There was fear in the executive mansion, conspiracy in the cabinet, treason and intrigue in the War Department. Chilling instructions came that he might employ civilians in fatigue and police duty, and that he might send his proposed party of laborers to Castle Pinckney. Meanwhile, some of his suggestions would be under consideration. Besides, he was cautioned to send his communications to the Adjutant General or Secretary of War, with the evident purpose to forestall and prevent any patriotic order or suggestion which might otherwise reach him from General Scott. Nevertheless, Anderson did not weary in his manifest duty. His letters of November 28th and December 1st, though perhaps not as full and urgent, are substantial repetitions of his former recommendations. The growing excitement of the Charleston populace and the increasing danger to the forts are restated with emphasis. He says that there appears to be a romantic desire urging the South Carolinians to have possession of Fort Moultrie. Various reports come that as soon as the state should secede, the forts would be demanded, and if not surrendered, they would be taken. All rumors and remarks indicate a fixed purpose to have these works. The Charlestonians are drilling nightly and making every preparation for the fight, which they say must take place. Once more he repeated that the security of Fort Moultrie would be more greatly increased by throwing garrisons into Castle Pinckney and Fort Sumter than by anything that could be done in strengthening its own defenses. He sent a detailed report of his command to force again upon the attention of the department his fatal deficiency in numbers, and to show the practical impossibility of repelling an assault or resisting a siege with any reasonable hope of success. His letters reached the same inevitable conclusion. Quote, the question for the government to decide, and the sooner it is done the better, is whether when South Carolina secedes, these forts are to be surrendered or not. If the former, I must be informed of it and instructed what course I am to pursue. If the latter be the determination, no time is to be lost in either sending troops, as already suggested, or vessels of war to this harbor. Either of these courses may cause some of the doubting states to join South Carolina. I shall go steadily on preparing for the worst, trusting hopefully in the God of battles to guard and guide me in my course. Unquote. While Anderson was thus penning the plain issue, as it lay in the clear light of a soldier's conception of right and conviction of duty, another pen was framing the reply agreed upon by the President and his advisers at Washington. Major Anderson might have faith in the God of battles, but what faith could he have in a government holding one-third of a vast continent peopled by 30 millions of freemen which could not or would not, in face of the most urgent reiterated appeals and the most imminent and palpable necessity, send him two or three companies of recruits, when the possession of three forts, the peace of a city, 
the allegiance of a state, if not the tremendous alternative of civil war, hung in the balance. Quote, it is believed, so ran the reply and apparently the final decision of the government, from information thought to be reliable, that an attack will not be made on your command, and the secretary has only to refer to his conversation with you and to caution you that should his convictions unhappily prove untrue, your actions must be such as to be free from the charge of initiating a collision. If attacked, you are, of course, expected to defend the trust committed to you to the best of your ability. The increase of the force under your command, however much to be desired, would, the Secretary thinks, judging from the recent excitement produced on account of an anticipated increase, as mentioned in your letter, but add to that excitement and might lead to serious results." Unquote. This renunciation by the War Department of the proper show of authority and power, demanded by plain necessity and repeatedly urged by its trusted agents, must have touched the pride of Anderson and his brother officers. But a still deeper humiliation was in store for them. The same letter brought him the following notice. Quote, the Secretary of War has directed Brevet Colonel Huger to repair to the city as soon as he can safely leave his post, to return there in a short time. He desires you to see Colonel Huger and confer with him prior to his departure on the matters which have been confided to each of you. Unquote. Colonel Huger was an ordnance officer of the Army, then stationed for duty in Charleston, of distinguished connections in that city, and having on that account as well as personally, great local influence. What the precise nature of the instructions were, which the department sent him, does not appear from any accessible correspondence. The result of the action which the two officers took thereunder is, however, less doubtful. It appears to have been, in effect, a mission by two army officers of honorable rank, in obedience to direct commands from the Secretary of War, to humbly beg the Charlestonians not to assault the forts. Major Anderson, on his part, dismisses the distasteful mission with a significantly curt report. Quote, I have the honor to acknowledge the receipt on the 4th of your communication of the first instant. In compliance therewith, I went yesterday to the city of Charleston to confer with Colonel Huger, and I called with him upon the mayor of the city and upon several other prominent citizens. All seemed determined as far as their influence or power extends, to prevent an attack by a mob on our fort. But all are equally decided in the opinion that the forts must be theirs after secession." Unquote. What a bitter confession for a brave and sensitive soldier, who knew that with half a company of artillerymen in Castle Pinckney, as he had vainly demanded, the Charleston mob, with the conspiring governor and insurgent secession convention, would have been compelled to accept from him, as the representative of a forbearing government, the safety of their roof-trees and the security of their hearthstones. But his duty was to obey, and so he resigned himself without a murmur to the hard conditions which had fallen to his lot. I shall, nevertheless, adds Anderson, knowing how excitable this community is, continue to keep on the qui viva and, as far as is in my power, steadily prepare my command to the uttermost to resist any attack that may be made. Colonel Huger designs, I think, leaving Charleston for Washington tomorrow night. 
he is more hopeful of a settlement of impending difficulties without bloodshed than I am. End of chapter 21